0: Hello comrades and welcome back to Marxist Voice, the podcast of the international Marxist tendency in Britain. So for over a year now, we've seen a resurgence of the labor movement in Britain. We've seen an uptick in strike action, growing industrial militancy, as well as ferment inside of the trade unions themselves. To find something comparable to this situation, We have to go back to the 1970s, a decade which saw a rebirth of the class struggle after an era of relative calm since the end of the Second World War. Throughout this decade, the working class demonstrated its power. It brought down governments. In factory occupations, workers showed that they could organise production themselves. The working class was butting up against the limits of capitalism and posing the question of socialism. Ultimately, however, this decade of struggle ended with the defeat of the working class and the election of the infamous right-wing Thatcher government, which saw its main task as smashing the working class movement. Clearly, we must absorb the lessons of this decade of struggle, so in this episode of Marxist Voice, Ben Glanetsky will provide an overview of these events, as well as the lessons that we can apply in the struggle today.
1: We know already, don't we, that there is a real upswing in the class struggle in Britain at the moment. It's unprecedented what we're seeing today, really for the last 40 years or so. I won't list everything that is taking place in Britain right now. You can find that out for yourselves. But obviously what is what, what is happening is that certain comparisons are being drawn between the situation that we're facing today and the situation as it was in Britain in the 1970s. And there are some common features with what was happening in the 1970s, and therefore there are some lessons that we can learn from what took place at that time, and therefore what we can expect, what we can predict in terms of perspectives, and also our tasks as Marxists with what we're facing today. So, similar today, similar to today... The 1970s was really a rebirth of the class struggle in Britain, after a period of relative calm ever since the end of the Second World War. There were strikes in Britain in the 1960s, but they were pretty low level for the most part, quite small, quite short, and in most cases, unofficial. Throughout most of the 60s, right up until from 1960 to about 1968, 90% of all the strike action that took place was unofficial strike action. Because the unions at that time in the 60s, the trade unions in Britain, were very much under the control, under the domination of the right wing in the Labour movement. The union leaders were overwhelmingly on the right. The TUC, which for the international comrades in the room, the TUC is the umbrella organisation that coordinates all the trade unions in the country. The TUC was backing. It was in favour of wage restraint policies, holding wages back, holding wages down. The trade union leaders were in favour of that through the 60s. There were a couple of exceptions. 1966, the Seamen's strike, seafarers, seafaring workers strike. They struck against poor wages and conditions. And that was, that is significant. Okay, it was 66. It was at a time when there wasn't a lot going on on the industrial front but it was the first indication that something was beginning to brew because that uh, the NUS the National Union of Seamen it had they hadn't gone on strike in 1926 in Britain which was when the general strike took place 1926 their last strike action was 1911 the fact that they were taking strike action in 1966 over wages and conditions was a significant fact and it was the harbinger of things to come an indication that things were starting to shift. In 1967, there was more evidence of this shift beginning to take place in the trade union movement. In the engineering union, there was a dramatic change in the leadership of that union. It had previously been... Its leader, its general secretary, had previously been a a right-winger, a lord, I think, or I can't remember his surname. And, uh, And he was... In the, in the election for the General Secretary of the Engineering Union in 1967, uh, the right wing was beaten and a man called Hugh Scanlon became the General Secretary of the Engineers Union. He was quite close to the Communist Party. He was not a member of the Communist Party. He was close to it. He described himself as a Marxist. He was very clearly on the left. It was quite a dramatic change inside that union. And that was followed shortly afterwards. By the election in the Transport and General Workers' Union of a left-wing leader there as well, a man called Jack Jones, who had already been elected to the the NEC of the Labour Party, and then was elected the General Secretary of this Transport and General Workers' Union. He was a bit of a Sharon Graham-type figure, and actually, sure enough, the Transport and General Workers' Union is now Unite, so it's one one part of, of what Unite the Union is now. So he was quite a radical figure. These these figures uh, who got elected into the general secretary's positions, they were quite radically on the left. And these changes, the, the, the NUS strike, the changes in the leadership of these unions, they reflected a process that had been building up for some time. Because the working class was in quite a strong position at the end of the 1960s. Throughout the 50s and the 60s, there'd been full employment, more or less. The scars of the past period from the working class point of view, had been healed. There'd been economic growth. And the proletariat was also industrially very strong. Miners, steel workers, shipbuilders. There was a strong industrial working class, not burdened down by defeats, which, which had sort of drifted from the memory. And, uh, and they were in a position, they were ready and, and willing to fight, basically. They are feeling their strength. You also had, at that time in Britain, a relatively strong communist party. We have international comrades in the room. The communist party in Britain never really—it has never reached the, the uh, size and influence of communist parties on the European continent. But at that time, in the in the late '60s, the communist party was relatively strong. They had about thirty thousand members on paper, and they had a quite a strong base uh, in the industrial working class, especially among shop stewards which is that the, the layer of trade union officials closest to ordinary workers. Uh, more on the shop stewards in the Communist Party later, because that becomes quite significant. But the result of this process then, the result of the 50s and the 60s, was this situation that you began to see developing in the late 60s. Now, at this time, it was there was a Labour government in power, and they published in the late 60s, a white paper, which is a a proposal for a law. Basically, it's the first draft of a new law. And this was called In Place of Strife. This was the name of the white paper, In Place of Strife. In in Place of Trade Union Conflict. In Place of of Class Struggle, basically. They wanted something different. And, And basically, what this was was a massive attack on trade union rights. That's what uh, the Labour government was putting forward. And this, as you can imagine, caused uproar. Here was a Labour government that was attacking the working class, attacking in particular trade union rights. Among other things, what what this proposed law introduced was what was known as a cooling off period, which means workers vote for strike action. But then this law proposed to give the government the power to say, all right, you can have your strike action in 30 days or in 60 days' time. But you're going to take a bit of time to cool off, calm down from all your, as if they'd just gotten all worked up and decided in the spur of the moment, oh, we should take some strike action, but give them a month and they'll decide, actually, we don't want to take strike action. That's the, but that's the idea. It was an attack on, on, uh, on the trade unions. And also, it would have brought in the ability of the government to fine trade unions as well, it would have removed a certain amount of immunity, which the trade unions had up until that point from uh, legal action. As I say, it provoked fury in the trade union movement. Scanlan and Jones, these trade union leaders, they demanded that the TUC reconvene immediately to discuss exactly what they were going to do about all of this. The thrust in this movement against In Place of Strife was really coming from below. It was in answer to this that the Communist Party, which, as I said, had this relatively strong base among industrial workers, formed something called the Liaison Committee for the Defence of Trade Unions. And this Liaison Committee was a kind of unofficial organisation, network of shop stewards, of those trade union officials closest to the working class. And through that organisation, in late 1969, a political strike was called against this. An unofficial strike, but nevertheless a political strike against these proposed attacks on the trade unions. It was a day of action, that's what they called it, a day of action. I think it was in November 1969. This was the first political strike in Britain since 1926. And that really, late night, that political strike, late 1969, that set the stage for the 1970s and the turbulence that was to come. Now, I spoke to Rob uh, this morning when he gave me a heart attack by saying that he couldn't do the leadoff. And um, and he was... We were chatting a bit about the 1970s. And he said that he remembers 1970. If he was here, you've got to imagine me with a Welsh accent and 30 years older. And... And he would... He would be telling you uh, that he remembers 1970. And he remembers the mood. And above all, he remembers the change in the mood that took place. You could really feel it coming off the back of this growing... This struggle, the 1966 strike the changes in the union leaders, the political strike at the end of 69. 1970 dawns and you can feel the changed mood in society. It was a real turning point that year. Maybe not immediately obvious, but it became obvious quite quickly that 1970 was a real turning point. A Tory government was elected in the summer, the Heath government. And it was elected into this situation from the ruling class's point of view at that time in 1970. British capitalism was in a terrible state. It was was incredibly weak compared to how it had been uh, several decades before. It had this long period of of relative decline ever since the end of the Second World War. Living standards in Britain throughout that period, since 1945, had not kept pace in terms of the increase in living standards They'd not kept pace with the increase in living standards that was taking place across Europe. Industrial production in Britain was growing each year by 1.5%, but in the United States, in Germany, it was growing in that same period by 3%. So Britain's industrial production was half, in terms of growth, half what it was of its competitors, of its rivals. Between 1945 and uh What year were we talking about? 1970. Uh, Manufacturing exports in Britain had fallen, like in terms of the total manufacturing exports in the world in 1945, Britain had 25% of those. And by 1970, it had 10%. The rate of profit that the capitalist class in Britain was extracting, that the amount of profit was extracting, the rate of profit in Britain was falling dramatically throughout this period as well. All of this problem, this long-term decline of of British capitalism, this long protracted period of decline, was a product of the short-sightedness of the British capitalist class. They'd become an incredibly parasitic layer. All capitalists are parasitic to a certain extent, but the British capitalists were really degenerating fast. They were not, above all, reinvesting their profits. They were not reinvesting the money into more efficient businesses, raising productivity, developing technology... They were just creaming the top profits off the top and keeping them, which makes for short-term high profits. But in the long term, that means that your industries are going to be outstripped by your competitors. And therefore, over the long run, your profits are going to decline. Well, this was all really becoming quite clear to the British capitalist class, or at least some of them, in 1970. And Heath and the Tories, elected in 1970, wanted to sort all this out. They want to solve this problem, take all this on. And to do so, they wanted to attack workers, drive down their wages and conditions to try to restore this falling rate of profit. They wanted also to close businesses. They said there are a lot of businesses that are inefficient, unproductive, unprofitable, uncompetitive. We've got to end subsidies to those businesses, the Tories were saying. This was the, and obviously that would have led to massive unemployment, the sacking of all these workers and so on. This was the the programme. This was the policy of the Heath government elected in 1970. And they were very gung-ho about it. They were really up for the fight. They were ready to go. Within one month, they ran into difficulties straight away. They actually had to introduce a state of emergency in Britain within a month of getting elected in 1970. Because you had the first official dock strike since 1926 take place at this time. So this was the continuation of of what had been building up in the late 60s, then hit this Heath government straight away uh, with such severity that they had to implement a state of emergency. The month after that, you had local authority workers going on strike, another massive strike which rocked this government. The following year, 1971, you had a massive movement, a massive uh, dispute, involving uh, the Upper Clydeside shipbuilders. And they were trying, they were, they were on strike, they were having a movement to save their jobs. Because the upper cli- the shipbuilders were basically deemed as this unproductive, uncompetitive industry. And the government's plan was basically to shut it down and, and throw all these people out of work. And they said, we're not having it. And what they organised actually was a work-in. They, they occupied the workplaces and, and carried on their work. They didn't didn't go on strike, they didn't refuse to do work. They said, look, we can work, we are capable of working, we are capable of producing. And that was a real inspiration. It it, it caught the imagination all over the country. There were solidarity demonstrations everywhere. There were other, there were were solidarity occupations also. And uh, and it actually forced a U-turn, such was the militancy of that strike. The fact that it caught the imagination all over the country, it forced the government to U-turn on this policy of not giving subsidies to businesses um, to to keep them open and so on. Now, obviously, all of this rattled this, this Tory government quite a lot. And so to deal with it, the centrepiece of their strategy for restoring Brit- the power of British capitalism, crushing the working class, pushing down their wages and conditions, so on, the centrepiece was something <coughs> excuse me, called the Industrial Relations Bill, which was a, the bill is what it is before it becomes a law, of course. Now, this put forward policies such as outlawing the closed shop, outlawing the idea that all workers in a particular uh, company had to be part of a union. They wanted to get rid of that and allow non-unionised workers into workplaces. They wanted every trade union to register formally with the government. Balloting was to become formal and uh, convoluted balloting before strike action was to become compulsory. This cooling-off period also was introduced, uh, or or proposed to be introduced. And they wanted to remove another layer of immunity, remove immunity for sympathy strikes. That was quite a common phenomenon. You have a section of workers going on strike, and you have another section of workers who say, well, yeah, their struggle is our struggle, and we are also going to go on strike. And sympathy with that, the government proposed to make that illegal, basically. or effectively. They said they will remove immunity from trade unions being sued for carrying out sympathy strikes. It was a massive attack, obviously, on the trade unions. Taken all together, this was an enormous attack. What it was effectively proposing was huge state regulation of trade unions. Now, Scanlan and Jones, obviously, these left-wing trade union leaders, were against it and began to kick up a big fuss. But again, above all, the campaign came from below. There was a massive response in the trade union movement against this proposed industrial relations bill. Demonstrations or strikes, actions of half a million were taking place around the country. Again, Rob remembers this period. I'm sure there are comrades in the room who remember this period. He said, it's aside, he was when he was younger, Rob was in France for May 1968. Aside from that, the demonstrations that took place against the industrial relations bill, they were the first demonstrations that Rob really remembers, he says, 300,000 marched in London under the banner, interestingly enough, of Kill the Bill, which came up again not that long ago in relation to a different bill uh, that the government has been trying to pass. All of this was really given this push forward by this liaison committee, this unofficial, semi-official shop stewards network, basically, that existed at the time. So this movement from below really caught hold. And what you really see then is that whip of counter-revolution. The Tories saying, we're going to curtail trade union rights. And in response, there was a massive movement of the working class to answer it. So you see that process that we often discuss, a whip of counter-revolution driving the revolutionary movement forward or the workers' movement forward. In March 1971, there was an unofficial strike, but two million, nationally, two million workers went on strike. In an unofficial capacity, it was pushed by that Liaison Committee for the Defence of the Trade Unions. This massive campaign brought enormous pressure on the leaders of the TUC. And they came out with a policy of no registration. Trade unions should not register with the government according to the rules of this Industrial Relations Act. So again, you see the power of the pressure of the movement on on the trade union leaders. And what can be achieved with that. And when we come to 1972, you have another excellent example of the power of the mass movement and the pressure that that can put on the leaders of the trade unions. The National Union of Mine Workers. It was dominated by the right wing in 1972. But at that time, and this is also a comparison with today, inflation was starting to take off in Britain at that time. And obviously that was putting enormous pressure on wages. As we understand, inflation goes up, everything becomes more expensive, and workers need to get pay increases if they are to cover their costs. And uh, and so although the right wing of the, the NUM, the National Union of Mine Workers, was in control at the very top of the union, there was this growing layer of radicalized activists at, at the area level of the NUM, And you had this enormous pressure then of the objective situation of the inflation, which was causing workers to become more militant and to demand that action be taken to keep their wages up with inflation. So early 1972, you see the first official strike action by the miners since 1926. And what they were demanding was a 47% pay increase. They were not pulling their punches. They obviously uh, were shooting very, aiming very high. And the TUC, under pressure from the situation, from the movement, from the rank and file, the TUC backed it. Not fully in the sense they didn't call all the other unions out, but they, they said, look, the, uh, the, the strike needs to be respected. And that means coal should not be moved around the country. Uh, and the TUC was encouraging that basically to support the strike. So, and the movement of coal around the country was successfully halted in almost every case. And solidarity action began to spread. Workers in other industries and all over the country began to come out in solidarity with the miners. Obviously, to try and tackle this, the government did have certain places where they had stockpiled coal to try and... Uh, in anticipation of any kind of crisis, including an industrial crisis, including a strike, and they were trying to use these stockpiles to break the strike. Don't worry, we don't need the miners because we've got these stockpiles of coal. Um, <clears throat> and attention fell on a place called, uh, the, it was called Saltley. Gasworks in Saltley, which is just, quite near Birmingham. And it's where there was a large stockpile of coal. And it was one of the few places that still remained open at the time for the moving of coal. So in nearby Birmingham, 40,000 engineering workers voted to go on strike and 10,000 of them after that vote, 10,000 engineering workers from Birmingham marched on the Saltley uh, gas works. On arriving there, they joined 2,000 miners who were already picketing the gas works. had already gone there to try and close it off and to try and stop the coal being moved. There were 1,000 police there who were completely overwhelmed. I've got a, I've got a quote it was at this time based also that Arthur Scargill, later the leader of the uh, miners' strike in the 80s, this was when he was first becoming uh, an organiser in the area. And he describes the scene at the Saltley Gasworks. So there were 2,000 miners there. There's 1,000 police there. He says, some of the lads were a bit dispirited. But then over the hill came a banner. And I've never seen in my life as many people following a banner. As far as the eye could see, it was just a mass of people marching towards Saltley. Our lads were jumping in the air with emotion. A fantastic situation. I started to chant, close the gates, close the gates. And it was taken up, just like a football crowd. And they did close the gates, and it was a victory uh, for the miners. The government, in this situation, panicked, called an inquiry. The inquiry recommended a 20% wage increase or the miners. A massive victory. They could have got more, to be honest, but nevertheless, a massive victory and a complete humiliation, exposing the weakness of the Tory government. Things were then to get worse for the the Tory government. The summer of 1972, you had a big battle on the docks. Two haulage firms, uh, shipping firms, they went to court to try and stop people picketing uh, their workplaces. The union was organising pickets, and they, they took them to court to try and stop them picketing and also to fine the union. They said this is in breach of the Industrial Relations Act that had been passed. And, uh, and one of these haulage firms succeeded at court. They got their injunction. And on the, on the evidence of, a, of private detectives, they arrested five, uh, five trade unionists, five picketers. And these five picketers, these shop stewards, were sent to Pentonville Prison. Now, these people became known as the Pentonville Five. Because what happened, as soon as the injunction was granted and it was found out that these people had been arrested, 44,000 Dockers immediately walked out. And 130,000 other workers in other industries also all walked out. The movement spread like wildfire and the pressure on the leaders of the trade unions was immediate. And the TUC convened a meeting and decided at that meeting they should call a one-day general strike at the end of July. That would have been the first general strike in Britain since 1926. And the big risk for the ruling class, for the government, is that it wouldn't have remained just a 24-hour strike, obviously. They would have lost control of the situation completely. So the government once again panicked and called in someone called the official solicitor, who has never been heard of before or since. (laughs) But an official solicitor was called who reinterpreted the law and said, oh, no, actually... The law doesn't mean that these people should have been arrested and therefore they should be freed immediately. And they were freed immediately uh, from prison. It was a complete nonsense. It tells us a lot about the nature of law under under capitalist society. Uh, But it was a massive victory again for um, the, the working class, for the labor movement. There's a big lesson in there for today as well. How quickly did that spiral out of control? Some, some nothing, some two-bit haulage firm, some, two, like, some nothing shipping company goes to court to get an injunction and arrests five people. And then all of a sudden, there's about to be a general strike. It, it happened so quickly, off seeming, something seemingly very small, and the government almost completely... Uh, they did lose control of the situation. But there's a lesson in that for us today. The mood at this time was really high among the working class, as you can imagine. For the first time again since 1926, there was an official building workers' strike. You had what was known as flying pickets. That's, by the way, also what Saltley was. It was workers going on strike and going from picket line to picket line, making sure they were all solid and, and adding a bit of support here where there wasn't enough and just making sure everyone was... These were known as flying pickets. And they were used in this building strike in 1972 as well. And the government really hated these flying pickets because they were a very effective weapon uh, of the labour movement, of the trade unions. They needed to contain it. And so they decided to make an example of some of these flying pickets, to make an example of these picketers. And they decided to, uh, they did that in North Wales. They arrested, they framed them. They arrested them and framed them on charges of intimidation, violence, conspiracy. And they took them to court. They arrested 24 of them, the Shrewsbury 24, as they're known, or the Shrewsbury pickets. And took them to court. It was a political trial. And six of them were found guilty and received up to three years in prison. Uh, And their sentences, by the way, scandalously, they were forced to finish those sentences even under a Labour government that got elected in 1974. And to this day, some of them, I'm pretty sure, are still trying to clear their names. The point is, 1972, I've, de- I've dwelt on it for a while, it was, it's not too much to describe it as a year of industrial insurrection in Britain. Now, obviously, after such a period of, of tumult, of, of convulsions, 1973 was a bit of a lull in the situation. Uh, not much for us to go into on that. But at the end of 1973, a new miners' strike started to develop. Because, of course, inflation had continued. They won a big wage increase uh, in 1972. But as we were approaching 1974, inflation has continued and wages had fallen behind again. The Tories, again, this is still the Heath government that we're talking about. The Tories, uh, they they had the strategy of trying to isolate the miners. They declared a three day week. They had blackouts of televisions and streetlights. They said, look, this is what the trade unions are doing. They're causing us to to have to conserve energy so that you can only have a three day week and you can't watch television and so on. The, they tried to intimidate the miners, basically. Nevertheless, the miners were not intimidated. They got a vote in favour of strike, strike action even bigger than anything they'd got ever before. And, uh, and so Heath and the Tories went for the ultimate gamble and called a general election. Under the title, under the slogan, who runs the country? Is it us or is it the unions? Who do you want running the country? And the answer was not you, because <laughs> the Tories lost that election. In February 1974, that was the first time that industrial action brought down a government, which is what happened at that, at that time. Now, 1974, as you all know, there was a, a massive world slump. It was the end of the post-war period from an economic point of view. Well, yeah, it was, it was the end of that post-war boom. Unemployment in the aftermath of that slump in Britain went to over one million, which was a real cycle of that figure. One million people unemployed. That had a real big psychological impact, obviously, as much as anything else. The international context, we can't go into now. Obviously, there was a lot going on internationally. Revolution in Portugal, um, the, the, the the collapse of the Junta in Greece, for example. the Pretty much the end of the Franco regime and the mass strikes and demonstrations that were taking place in Spain at that time. And so on. And in the context of all of this, as well, there were all this industrial struggle that been taking place. This these convulsions internationally, the collapse economically. There are all sorts of conspiracies by the ruling class, Um, the Gladio conspiracy and things like this. A high-ranking military officer in Britain he wrote a book called Low Intensity Operations, in which he said the main threat for the British Army is internal it's not external it's 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 the working class basically in britain It's the trade unions there were maneuvers military maneuvers at heathrow airport the army decided to basically stage a takeover of heathrow which they said was a training exercise but they hadn't informed the government that they were doing this it was a threat to the government at the time there was coup plotting for example uh and uh even in britain and strike breaking organizations were formed Uh, Paramilitary organisations were even being talked about. This is all going on in Britain at that time. This was the context in which, obviously, all this turbulence, all this class struggle provoked all of this kind of ferment among the ruling class, this plotting, this conspiring among uh, the ruling class. Something else we should bear in mind, of course, for today. But this is the context in which the Labour government comes to power and starts doing the ruling class's work for it almost immediately. Especially on the point of wage restraint. This Labour government immediately introduced a policy of wage restraint. And this was in the face of massive inflation. Inflation reached 26%, I think, in 1975. Huge inflation at that time. Was it higher than that, even? Um, So, massive inflation at the time, and the the Labour government's policy was to hold down wages. 1974 to 1977 was the fastest, the greatest fall in real wages in any comparative period prior to that, maybe not since, prior to that in in British history. That was presided over by a Labour government because of the crisis that was being faced at the time. Now Those Labour leaders were trusted. The working class wanted them to succeed. They wanted to give them time to do their work. Jones and Scanlan, these, these left-wing trade union leaders, they supported that wage restraint policy. They, 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 didn't, they didn't like it, but they supported it. They convinced the workers to follow their lead. They held back the working class. They held the line, basically, even as the working class was coming under this kind of pressure. 1976, there was a sterling crisis and the IMF had to step in to bail out uh, Britain. As we all know, when the IMF comes in to bail out a country, they they demand conditions. And the conditions were £3 billion worth of cuts to public services. And they pushed Britain extremely hard because they did not trust the Labour government with its links to the organised working class and its strong left wing and so on. You can see who really runs the country here, just like we've seen the IMF intervening with Liz Truss recently. Uh, they, They intervened in the same way. And you can see who really runs the country under a bourgeois democracy. But nevertheless, this Labour government implemented those things. It accepted those conditions imposed by the IMF. Harold Wilson, who was the Prime Minister, the leader of the Labour Party at this time, he resigned. A man called Callaghan took over, Jim Callaghan. And he said, when he took over, he said, the party's over. We're now going to have balanced budgets. It was austerity talk. It was the policies of the ruling class. And they, and this Labour government, this Callaghan government, began to implement Serious, harsh austerity on the workers, and that, of course, pushed the unions into action. You had at this time a, a, Grunwick, a, a strike in Grunwick. The Fire Brigades Union also went on for the first time ever in British history. The Fire Brigades Union took strike action. This was also in even against their own le- the leadership of the Fire Brigades. The executive of the Fire Brigades Union was on the right. But such was the anger with the government and the policies being pursued by this Labour government among the ranks of that union that, uh, that they, they, they voted in favour of strike action. You had uh, Ford's dispute, you had, you had a lot of disputes basically beginning to open up against this Callaghan government. All of these were on the question of wages, uh, or mostly on the question of wages, which needed to be kept up with inflation. The workers were constantly trying. Just to keep their heads above water to get wage increases uh, to keep up with inflation eventually the pressure was so great that the tuc itself which up until this point obviously when, when wilson was in power with the wilson government and so on from 74 the tuc had been in favor it had held the line it'd been in favor of wage restraint policies they had backed that labor government basically but as this pressure was building up the strike action was taking place the ferment was bubbling the TUC eventually had to come out against the Labour government, against the Callaghan government, and said, we do not support your wage restraint policies anymore. This is what gave rise to the winter of discontent, as it is known. Mass a huge wave of industrial action over the winter of, of 1978 into 79. Between October 1978 and March 1979, 10 million working days were lost to industrial action lorry drivers were on strike local authority workers were on strike health workers were on strike it affected every part of society basically and it led in the end to the fall of the labor government in 1979 they called an election and they lost callaghan lost this election to thatcher 1979 is when thatcher came to power with this strategy that had been worked out while the tories had been in opposition for attacking and crushing the unions she was in a weak position at first. Um, obviously, that that began to change. The, the, it opens the chapter on a new, uh, well opens a new chapter: the election of Thatcher, which happened in '79. Uh, so it's a bit beyond the remit, the scope of this particular discussion today. But that, in a nutshell, was the was, and there's a lot more that could be said about the 1970s. This was the the the, the history of the 1970s, the the industrial and political history of Britain. What lessons can we learn from this for today? Well, first of all, we can say that clearly there are phases to the class struggle. It's not a one continuous march upwards with one day to the next, people becoming a little bit more radicalized and then a bit more radicalized. A small strike becomes a slightly bigger strike becomes a slightly bigger strike. No, there's ebb and flow to it. There's there's a year of insurrection reaction, 1972, followed by a year in 1973 of relatively little on the industrial front, only to come back again on a higher level in 1974. You see defeats and you see victories uh, throughout this period. And you understand that any defeat in a period of a general ascendancy of the class struggle is only a partial defeat. It's not a complete defeat. Uh, and, uh, and things like the Shrewsbury pickets, for example, that was a defeat, that was a political trial and these people were, were victimized and still to this day uh, have not managed to clear their names. And yet the class struggle continued, didn't it? Even beyond that, that wasn't the end. So to get depressed, to get down and demoralised about this or that thing, we can get angry about it, for sure, but obviously it doesn't, uh, it doesn't change our general perspective, does it, of the, of the class struggle? Sometimes the government will win, and sometimes the workers will win. But you can get these very sudden changes, like the, like the Pentonville Five, for example, that... that that threat of a general strike that seems to come out of nowhere, these sudden changes that can uh, grip the situation, that can, that can uh, take place, can all be very unexpected. Above all, this kind of stuff happens in a situation where everything is being churned up. When, when the economy is in uh, crisis, for example, when the government is in crisis, the government tries to strike a blow, it passes the Industrial Relations Act, but then there's a massive response. Everything is being churned up, it swings one way, then the next. And you get these sudden changes. This is, this, is how we, this is why we have the perspectives that we do for Britain and other countries. We can see that it's happened before. Yes, in a slightly different situation. But this is the kind of period that we are entering into. You also see from all of this, you cannot turn that class struggle on and off like a tap. It proceeds according to yeah, the, the events that take place objectively, its own internal dynamic and logic. Depends who the trade union leaders are, the kind of struggles that are going on in the trade unions. and and their own history and individual development. And then the impact of objective events on the working class. And are they ready and willing and able to struggle uh, at a particular, at a given moment? What you can see is that the pressure of workers on their leaders, the pressure of the working class on its leadership can have a huge impact as well in individual unions and then obviously at the level of the TUC itself as well and the whole movement. Because these, these leaders, Take take Jones and Scanlan, for example, and these these left leaders who, when Wilson was elected in 1974, they backed the wage wage restraint policies, didn't they? They supported those things. Yeah, but under Callaghan, that position was no longer tenable. They were pushed by the impact of the crisis on the rank and file, on the working class. They could no longer, that was not a tenable position anymore, and they had to come out against Callaghan. The impact, the pressure of the working class on its leaders, the fire brigades union forced to go on strike, even though their executive didn't want to. The the National Union of Mine Workers forced to go on strike, even though their executive was run by the right wing. Yeah, the pressure of the workers on their leaders, this is a crucial lesson that comes out of of this period as well. But you can also, and and part of that also is this lesson of the the role of the lefts in the trade unions, who did, under that Labour government, under that Wilson government, these people who have been leading the struggle against the Tories, who brought down that Heath government in 1974, they then held the workers back under the Labour government. They play a bad role in that situation. Uh, And that includes as well the Communist Party, who, as we know, throughout all of their history, have this this approach of not wanting to offend the the left reformist leaders too much, basically. And so they also participate in the holding back of of this struggle. You can also see big differences between... The 70s and today, the number of trade unions was much higher in the 1970s. There were many, a lot of the unions that I've mentioned, and a lot of the unions that were involved in those struggles have been amalgamated since then into these massive, monolithic—or well not monolithic—but massive unions. Unite and Unison have incorporated loads of these smaller unions over the years. And some of those unions, some of the ones that make up Unite, for example, now, Unite, which of course is, and has been for a while, a very left-wing union in this country, is incorporated, uh, it's electricians, isn't it, Frank Chappell? Um, They've incorporated that. Now, that was an incredibly right-wing union. But that has been incorporated over the years as part of, like, they were real strike breakers. The leaders of that union were on the buses with the scabs going driving through the picket lines and stuff. Real right-wing uh, union leaders. Yeah, but that's been incorporated now into Unite, into this left-wing union. The power, the, the position of those smaller right-wing unions has been broken on that basis. What you have, uh, what you have today is these, these massive unions. Not all, obviously there are some small unions, but take Unite, take Unison. Massive unions commanding millions of workers. They have put very, very powerful organs, potentially a really powerful lever for the working class if they want to coordinate industrial action, not even actually just on the industrial front, but obviously, and although the, the link has been weakened a lot, and so nevertheless, the unions, they can play an important part in the Labour Party as well. These, one union with millions of members actually has a lot more uh, say then in, in the Labour Party than in the past. That's why, of course, today, the ruling class, the right wing, is fighting like hell to keep control of unions like Unison, where there has been this big struggle, this big battle between right and left in that union. They will not give that up without a fight because they recognise that a union of that size, the biggest union in the country, with workers in all these different sectors, if, that is, if control of that is taken by the left and kept by the left, that is a massive threat to the stability, to the position of the capitalist class. And so they've they've throw, they've pulled all the dirtiest tricks in the book they've thrown everything at it to try and maintain control in in unison shifts to the left in the unions today can have a huge impact can have a massive impact and they can uh, they can be the harbinger of much bigger struggle like the 60s like the late 60s you saw these shifts in the leadership of the unions a reflection of a process that had come before And that meant that you had in position these people who were willing to lead the workers in struggle come the the turbulent time of the 70s. Well, these shifts in the leadership of the unions today, this is a big threat. These are warning signs. These are the warning lights blinking for the ruling class uh, that that there are big struggles to come. And that's, of course, why we participate in those struggles inside unions as well. Why we back the left against the right? Because we understand the history from the 70s and other times. Everything is being ch- everything in the 70s was being churned up. Everything today is being churned up. It produces a change also in political consciousness among the working class. It's, that, it's what Alan talked about on Friday night, that molecular process of revolution. When, when action like this starts to happen, when, when events like this happen and workers enter into struggle, uh, people can start to learn a lot. Consciousness can begin to change and develop a lot. People can start to draw re- very radical conclusions. We often say, don't we, that people learn more in a week of strike action than they do of 10 days of of, of just going to work as normal. Because questions start to be asked in such a situation. Who really runs this workplace? Why am I paid so little, given that I am one of the ones who actually runs this place? Why does the boss have such big profits and I have such low wages? What side is the government and the state and the police, what side are they really on as they're here trying to break our strikes and escort the scabs across the picket lines and so on? What if we do win? What if this strike is successful? How do we maintain what we've won? If inflation is going up, we win a pay increase this year, but if inflation continues, then what are we going to do next year and the year after? And why is inflation going up in the first place? And how can we stop that happening? What if we do bring down the government? Like in 1974, what if our industrial struggle brings down the government? What do we replace it with? The Harold Wilson government, which which enforced wage restraint also. These are political questions that are are brought up in this kind of period of, of industrial action, of strikes, of working class struggle. And political consciousness can develop in the working class on that basis. And of course, in response to that, the ruling class will respond as well these conspiracies, these, this, this plotting uh, that can take place, that can grip the ruling class, this, this sense of panic and a lashing out that you will get as a result of this. There is, of course, when it comes to the ruling class, a very big difference between the 1970s in Britain and Britain today, which is, and Rob mentioned this yesterday, which is that today the ruling class doesn't have anyone it can rely on to, uh, to act in its interests, or it has far fewer people. Its representatives at every level, in every part of society, are completely unreliable in a way that they have never been at any point in British history. The crisis is deeper today, economically speaking, than it, than it was in the 70s. And yet the bourgeois economists understand nothing of what is going on, and they have no idea of how to get uh, the ruling class out of it. The political leaders of the ruling class are completely out of their control. People like Boris Johnson or Liz Truss. The fact that Boris Johnson could make a return to British politics, the fact that Donald Trump could make a return in the US, is an indication of how far control has slipped out of the hands of the, the ruling class on, their, on the political front. But it's not just the political parties, the entire regime in Britain is discredited. The police are hated, and the police, in turn, hate the government. The media is largely discredited. After People could see, for example, with Jeremy Corbyn, the role of the media in that, and they're disgusted by it. And, uh, and the monarchy uh, is discredited. It's now lost its key figurehead. The, the whole regime, the whole establishment in Britain has never been weaker than it is today. They have far fewer tools. It's a real dilemma for them to be able to fight the working class with this kind of setup. In such a situation as this, this churning up, this pressure on the working class on the one side, this panic, this chaos, this this lack of clear thinking on the side of the ruling class, you could stumble into a general strike in such a situation, or or certainly very militant, massive strike action in this situation. I don't don't think, clearly the, the ruling class doesn't want that. I don't think most of the trade union leaders want a, actually want a general strike either uh, because obviously it poses the question of power and it puts that question very firmly on their, uh, in their laps and they don't really have a, the, no, no trade union leader today I would say has a real clear understanding of or, uh, a clear desire to actually fundamentally change society, to actually bring about a socialist revolution in Britain. Nevertheless, such a situation could arise. The general strike in 1926 in Britain was stumbled into. Neither side particularly wanted it, but it just sort of it happened because of the the, the logic of the events themselves. Look at li- the legislation that Liz Truss and her government is trying to implement, which which at the, is is saying that they're going to implement a minimum service. For example, take the trains. They say, all right, yeah, yeah, you can go on strike, but you at least have to run a minimum level of service. At least these, things, which is to be determined by the employer. So it's basically completely redundant. What is the point of the strike if you can't actually shut down the, the thing that you're working? It's a complete undermining, a complete attack on uh, on the trade union movement. It undermines their reason for existence. That would be an existential threat to the to the trade unions. Do you think they're not going to respond to that? Of course they're going to respond to that. The leader of the RMT the other day, Mick Lynch, was calling for an uprising. He said, he said about the TUC, he said either you can back this uprising. He's not clear about what an uprising means. He doesn't know. He hasn't explained. Nevertheless, it's the language that he's using that's important. He calls for an uprising. He says to the TUC, you either back this or you get out of the way. Just don't get in our way while we have our uprising and so on. We say, yeah, we want an uprising as well, of course, uh, but we give it a certain content. Mm -hmm. The the pressure is mounting, and things can very easily spiral out of control, just like uh, the Pentonville Five. We have this very explosive period ahead. But finally, this final lesson from the 70s, and, uh, and obviously a lesson for us today is that no matter how much ferment there is, if you don't have a revolutionary perspective, if you don't have leaders with a revolutionary perspective, then you can't unite those struggles, all these struggles that are going to take place all that political consciousness, all that questioning that's gonna be developed. You can't give that a clear conscious expression. You can't unite all those struggles together and use them to strike at the foundations of the the problem, to strike at the capitalist system itself. And the movement will slip through our fingers. Because otherwise, as we've seen time and time again, what, what the ruling class gives with one hand, under the pressure of the movement, they will take with another. They won in 1972, but then they implemented wage restraint after that. So they gave a concession in 1972, but then implemented wage restraint and wouldn't allow the wages to keep up with inflation. You can elect left leaders in a trade union. You can even elect a left Labour government. or Well, you can even elect a Labour government. Um, But within the confines of capitalism... What good does that do? They're bound by, you elect a Labour government and there's a massive world crisis of capitalism, that Labour government is gonna implement austerity With it, as long, as long as it doesn't have a perspective of breaking with capitalism. Without that, without a revolutionary perspective, a revolutionary plan to break with capitalism, you will never be able to solve the fundamental problems that give rise to this class struggle, this ferment in the first place. Today, there is a total vacuum on the left in Britain. There is no, the Communist Party has played a limit, uh, you know, had, it, had its limitations, but it played a certain role in the 1970s. The Communist Party it exists, but it does not have that kind of base that it had at that time. It doesn't have 30,000 members. It certainly doesn't have an industrial base in the way that it did. It doesn't have the authority that it did at that time either. There is a complete vacuum on the left in the Labour movement at the moment. So the main lesson from the 1970s is about our task. What is the task of the Marxists in this situation? We are not big enough to fill that vacuum that exists. But we can make a start, and we are making a start. We have to have that perspective of filling that vacuum. As this movement develops, as these processes take hold, and this ferment develops, we need to build above all. We need to grow the forces of Marxism, educate ourselves about what to expect, what we need to do in that situation, and on that basis, We can take the lessons from the 1970s, we can take that struggle, all the sacrifices, all the heroic efforts of the working class at that time. And in our lifetimes, in our struggle, we can take it to a higher level and actually overthrow the system that gave rise to those struggles in the 70s and that giving rise to our struggles today. That is the overthrow of the capitalist system.
0: so that brings us to the end of this week's episode of marxist voice thanks very much for tuning in and before you go if this talk has piqued your interest and you'd like to learn more about the history of the british labor movement then we'd highly recommend a book by rob sewell called in the cause of labor a history of british trade unionism this book is available from our bookstore wellreadbooks.co.uk the link for this can be found in the show notes of this podcast And finally, if you're feeling inspired by what was mentioned in this talk, these titanic class battles which took place in the 1970s, then we would remind you that convulsive events just like this, perhaps even on a higher level, are on the agenda in Britain today. If we want to ensure that these future struggles are victorious and lead to the seizure of power by the working class, then it is our task to build a revolutionary leadership guided by Marxist ideas and with deep roots within the labor movement. This is what is required of us, so we would say if you're a communist, then get involved in the international Marxist tendency today. As we've mentioned in previous episodes, right now the IMT in Britain is undergoing a recruitment drive. We are determined to get to the 1000 member mark in Britain, to train up a new generation of class fighters steeled in Marxist ideas and intervening in the class struggle as communists. So if this sounds like something that you want to do, then we would urge you to get in touch with us today and join the International Marxist Tendency. You can find more information and the link to sign up using the link in the show notes of this podcast. And with that, we'll end this week's episode of Marxist Voice. Thanks very much once again to our listeners for tuning in and make sure you stay tuned for future episodes covering Marxist theory, revolutionary history and current events from a Marxist perspective. Brought to you by Marxist Voice, the podcast of the international Marxist tendency in Britain.